We've got baptisms tonight. Woo! Yes. Exciting. And I thought, now we finished our one anothering series for a little while. Did you enjoy that? Was it helpful? Was it challenging? Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. That's a good thing. We've uh, got a few weeks until we start off in Genesis again. We've got Family Zone coming up. We've got John Hosier joining us the week after as well. It'll be brilliant. If you missed him last time, you don't know what you're missing. Come along. It's going to be brilliant. And then we're going to come back into Genesis with Easter happening and things like that as well. But we'll be delving back into Genesis for a while. But um, just for now, just for this week, I thought it would be really important. Let's just, we've got baptisms tonight. Let's just really get to the nitty-gritty of the gospel and actually, just, just get excited about the gospel. Let's get excited about what Jesus has done on the cross. And there's these verses in Romans chapter 1. In uh, it's verses 16 and 17 we'll be looking at in a minute. It's where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the, not ashamed of the gospel. And this is, a, this is a little phrase that keeps popping up in different places. Jesus talks about it, don't be ashamed of me. Paul says more than once in other places as well. He says, don't be ashamed and even Peter says, don't be ashamed. It's this phrase that keeps popping up. And for a while, I've kind of got it wrong. I mean, I understood the, kind of the gist of it. But when I grew up in the church, I was, I was born in the church. My parents are still in. And they're still there. My dad even led it for a little while. And, uh, and I grew up always believing Jesus. And by the time I was 11, I actually got saved. It was an, it was an actual event. April the 12th, 1982, I was 11 years old. I gave my life to Christ. I was saved. Born again. And ever since then, although particularly from my secondary school and college and work, everybody knew I was a Christian, everybody knew what I stood for, everybody knew I loved Jesus, and, and even, even in, in the playground, the secondary school, when we were having play fights and playing war, you know, the phrase, kill the Christian, used to ring out, and they were, oh no, they're coming for me. <laughs> Some kind of Roman gladiator thing, I don't know what it was. Shoving me in the carcasses of lions or whatever, I don't know. But, I was... My understanding of not being ashamed of the gospel was I'm not embarrassed to be associated with Jesus or the church, which is what it means. But actually, I now discover it goes far deeper than that. Far, far deeper. What it means to be unashamed. This is about embracing our weaknesses, our inability to find the answer to our predicament of how we stand before a holy God. This is about pointing to him, not seeking salvation in stuff, or in other people, or find the answer inside yourself. That's what we keep hearing, a bit of Oprah Winfrey stuff a little bit. That kind of thing. It's, it's not about that, it's about realising the answer is in him. I'm weak, I'm pitiful, and that's okay, because it's about him. That's what it means to be unashamed, and I hope by the end of this morning we'll all be able to glimpse a bit more of that. But you see, this means that therefore, I'm a, I'm a bloke, I'm in the world, I'm meant to be manly, but if this means that Jesus is the prince in shining armour on a white horse who comes sweeping in to rescue me, the damsel in distress, that's okay. Brilliant. And if you read Revelation 19, you find out pretty much that's what it's all about. The rider on the white horse. And so today I want to look at two people, Paul in particular, and another guy called Martin Luther, most of you might have heard of him, who really come to grasp what it means to be not ashamed of the gospel and come to grasp what it really means to be the weak one and to embrace that fact because it's about him and not about us after all. So let's just read these verses and we'll pray. Romans chapter 1, it's the sixth book of the Bible if you haven't found it already. We've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we've got Acts and then Romans. In chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. He's just written the introduction to his letter. 
And he says, I'm eager to come to you guys and to preach the gospel, to encourage you by preaching the gospel. And he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It just means the good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that's us effectively. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's read it again, it's only a short bit, isn't it? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's just pray. Lord, once again we open up your holy word. And as much as we believe the Bible is more than just a bunch of stories, more than just a history book, more than just a bunch of niceties or a nice way of living, this is about the full revelation of the Holy God, who you are, who we are, and what to do about that problem. Lord, we thank you that once again we get the chance just to dive deeper into just one nugget in this gold mine. And we pray, may you do exactly that. May we see it shine and sparkle in a brand new, brand new way we can grasp a greater understanding of quite what it is you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, the context here, Paul is writing to the Romans. The Christians, the believers in Rome. The seat of power. And he's about to, in the next verses onwards, he's about to dissect man's predicament. We are in big doo-doos. When he actually spells out quite where we're at as humanity and quite what we've done to this place and to ourselves, he's like, you're in trouble. Big trouble. And then he spends the rest of the book, this amazing letter, with so much rich gold mining to do in this, just this one letter alone. It's, it's awesome. But in there he just goes on to explain quite what Jesus has done about this problem. And it all starts here, where he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And what I want to do, I just want to pick apart these two verses... But I'm not going to do it in the normal way. Let's do it backwards. Okay? So we're not going to go through, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, down to his righteousness is revealed, and in the end, we're going to work backwards. So let's start with a very final line. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? Well, there was one guy who spent a long time trying to work out what that means. That was a guy called Martin Luther. You see... These are probably some of the most important few words in church history. In the 16th century, there was a spiritual earthquake that shook the church. It led to what's called the Protestant Reformation, is how the Catholics and the Protestants end up going separate ways in terms of understanding sound doctrine and disagreements over that. And it all started pretty much with these words, these six words. You can find them elsewhere in the Old Testament in Habakkuk, Chapter 2, verse 4, which is why Paul is quoting it, he's quoting the Jewish scriptures. And there's this guy, Martin Luther. He was 22, minding his own business, during a storm, and he got struck by lightning. And he was so terrified in that moment, he cried out to St. Anne, he was a good Catholic boy, cried out to St. Anne, save me, St. Anne, save me. If you do, I'll become a monk. He survived. So he became a monk. And he was a very good monk. He worked hard at being a monk. He near killed himself in vigil and prayer. And this, I love this quote. He says, If a monk should ever get to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. <laughs> what a guy. He tried hard to be a good monk to earn his way 
to heaven. Ten years later, he came across these words in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. You can see them there. The righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by their faith. And he pondered it day and night, trying to get his head, well, what does this really mean? Because his understanding of God's justice was about that it judges us. And that's it. He's a judge, he judges us. We're in trouble. Therefore, we're going to try really hard to make up for that. But yet here it says, the righteous shall live by their faith. That's what makes us righteous. And he pondered it day and night. It really, really, really bothered him. But eventually he realised that God's justice isn't just about judging us. It is, but it doesn't stop there. God's justice deals with this problem in a whole other way. And he says, when this came to light, and I'll explain a bit more in a minute, when he said, when this came to the light, he said, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open gates into paradise. That was the moment he got saved, not before. You see, all of us fall short of God's glory. Paul explains it a couple of chapters later, Romans 3.23. All have sinned, that means to fall short of God's glory. All of us have stepped out of God's boundaries at various points in our lives and basically just in our hearts at any given moment. If you're not living for him, if you're not honouring him as the number one, you're sinning. That's all it means. It's not just the acts. It's not just the stealing and the lying. They're the symptoms of the problem in the first place. And before a perfect judge, whether it's a small sin or a large sin, in inverted commas, doesn't matter, it's still a sin. A sin is a sin is a sin. If you're not honouring him, if you're dishonouring him, if you think you know better, that's a sin. So now, before a perfect judge who has to act on that problem, that means we're in trouble. Every single one of us. Now, we could deal with that in different ways. We could think, well, that's us stuffed. Might as well make the most of it. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's party. Let's get drunk. Doesn't matter. We're doomed anyway. Let's make the most of it. That's some people's attitude. Or, we could question him. And we could demand a free pass. Some people do that. Even Stephen Fry was doing that to a God he didn't believe in. Who do you think you are? Really? Don't think so. Some people do. Well, no, I'll live a good life. God deserves to let me into heaven. I'm not like Hitler. Or, another response is that we could accept the responsibility and know we're in trouble, but hope against the odds that there's a way out. The wonderful thing is, what Martin Luther found, is that there is. But the answer isn't in us. The answer's in God. And this is why Paul says, just before that, for in it, the good news of Christ, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This is talking about God's righteousness. Now righteousness just means God's right standing. His upstanding. And Martin Luther hated that word for a very, very long time. It really, really bothered him. He knew it meant that God's right standing, his upstanding moral character, judges us, holds us to account. We're in the dock. And this really bothered Martin Luther because he thought it stopped there and he had to do something about it himself. But when Martin Luther saw this in a whole new light, he came to understand that God's unwavering, Moral character demands punishment. It has to. It has to. But that same uprightness 
saves us. How? God's righteousness, his upstanding, demands the same in us. We don't have it. So what can be done about that? He gives us his. That sounds a bit mad, doesn't it? That's what the Bible says. What does that mean? Let me put it this way. I grew up in Croydon. And just two roads along from where I grew up, there was a family of a guy called Derek Bentley. Some of you may have heard of him. I remember the roads where I used to get my bus to school. And some of the family were still there when I, when I was living there. But long before I appeared on the scene in 1953, this young lad, Derek Bentley, he was 19, and he got in with the wrong crowd, some gangs. And one of them, this guy Chris, was obsessed with American gangster movies, and he had his own gun. And this Chris, he took Derek uh, along, and they, uh, they uh, attempted a burglary. And they got surprised by a policeman. And Chris pulled the gun on the policeman. And the policeman said, give me the gun. Derek says to Chris, holding the gun, let him have it, Chris. Chris thinks he needs the bullet, not the gun. And shoots the copper. The copper dies. They're both arrested, tried, and both executed for murder. Now, Derek's family fought for years, for decades, in fact, because they believed that Derek was quite simple-minded. He had a lot of learning difficulties going on, and they firmly believed that he was innocent of murder. Not innocent of the burglary. They were, they were never denying that. But they said, for murder, he's been executed for that. We firmly believe in his innocence in that respect. He was asking to hand the gun over. We don't believe there's enough evidence to say he should be executed for murder. But that's how the law saw him in it and did so. They saw him as guilty and executed him as a result. Death penalty. They fought for decades for exoneration. There was documentaries and books and there was a film as well with Christopher Eccleston in it. Eventually, in 1998, 45 years later, Derek Bentley was justified. Justification is a big word. It pops up in the Bible. It means this. Derek Bentley was justified in as much as he was declared innocent of murder. He wasn't pardoned. To be pardoned means you did it, but we'll let you off. And he wasn't just forgiven, which means you did it, but I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. It was more than that. He was declared not guilty. See, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. He was judged innocent in the first place, as if it had never happened. You see, we can talk about the courtroom picture of how we stand before God. I just talked about us being in the dock. The sin in our hearts, let alone the acts we've done that prove it, ultimately we are in the dock before a holy judge. And something needs to be done about that. But sometimes the picture gets a bit wrong. It's like God, is the, God the Father is judging us. And we are granted the death penalty for what we've done. Death just means complete separation from God. It's not just physical death. This is eternal spiritual separation from God. The worst place to be. And that is the death penalty over us because he can't tolerate sin. So we're doomed. We're in the dock. We're sent away. The black cap's gone on. We're sent away for the death penalty. And, it, and the, the picture is often described as Jesus then swoops and goes, I'll do it. Actually, it's more than that. 
Jesus is our judge. Romans 2, verse 16, explains that Jesus is our judge. That picture of Jesus on the white horse in Revelation 19 is described as the judge. Jesus himself judges us. Holy God judges us, knows we deserve the death penalty, sentences us to death, and then pays that price instead for us. And then it doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just deal with the death penalty, he then gives us his innocence. In that moment on the cross, he didn't just die for our sins, he gives us his innocence. If you just all you have to do is believe. It's freely available. Freely available, which is why Paul says, from the righteousness, the right standing of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith, from trusting in him. It's not your trust that saves you, it's the one you're trusting in that saves you. Don't forget that. It's not about how big your faith is, how big is the one you've got faith in. That's what it's about. From faith and for faith. Because from as much as we dwell on what has saved us in the first place, it gives us more faith for everything that comes our way for the future and for our eternal security. Don't think you're ever past the basics of the gospel. You need it every day. Don't think I'm saved now, I can move on to the important stuff now. So my ticket to heaven, never let go of the cross. Never let go of the cross. Never let go of what Jesus has done in his death and his resurrection. It's like I've described this before, it's like standing in front of a gold mine and saying, well it's so big I'm never going to get to the end of it, I'm just happy with my little ticket to have a look in the door. God's going, go digging. Because the more you dig, the more it will give you trust and security for the future. The more you realise how big I am, how perfect I am, how graceful, loving, merciful I am. And it brings joy, it brings peace, it brings security, it brings confidence and maturity. Don't let go of the, of the basics of the gospel. And so this is why Paul then says, verse 16, halfway through, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here is power. Do you see it? The simple truth of what Christ has done is sheer power for life-transforming power. It's the simple truth that shakes the earth. It did then and it does now. Billions of people who have been saved since because of one supposed man of history who proved himself to be more than just that. He's the God who created history in the first place. It's an open invite to all. Some will accept. Not all will. He doesn't say this is the power of God for salvation to everyone, does it? And here's the challenge. This is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Bible is real enough to accept that not everyone will believe. Some will rebel. Some will deny God's existence or want to have nothing to do with him even if they believe in him. People do. I'll meet them. All you have to do is believe and accept this open invite. Are you saved? Yes. You're free. What did Jenny pray earlier? You're free. It's not just do you feel like you might be free. You are free. So feel it. (laughs) It's the truth. And this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So this is what I mean. This, This is more than just being not embarrassed by it. This is saying, I am unashamed. It's not Paul saying, 
I'm proud of the gospel. It's quite a manly thing. Like it or lump it, no weakness here. I'm not giving up on what I believe. It's not, Paul's not saying that. Because you see, you've got to understand who he's writing to. He's writing to the Romans. He's writing to people in Rome, this proud, proud, very proud city, this seat of power. They're very proud of themselves, of their empire, of their ingenuity, their technical awareness. Very proud of that. And this good news is coming from this tiny little dusty nation that they have conquered, that is associated with commoners. This king that they're declaring, this small band from within that small country, they're declaring that's some great king, but he was a poor carpenter these Romans had crucified. It's that to be proud of. This guy is writing to them. Paul, he's just some feeble tent maker. Nothing, nothing impressive there. Is that something to be proud of? No. And Paul's going, no, I'm not proud. I'm unashamed. This is what I believe. I believe my king. This is the truth. I am unashamed. I have no shame in this. This is really important for us to understand. See, shame is a very interesting thing. We can all be driven by shame. I've been learning a lot more about it recently. See, shame is about the distress and the humiliation of being found out to be what you're really like on the inside. That's shame. And it drives us to act differently, to put on masks, to not be vulnerable. And for... This is what we've been studying recently. In our westernised culture, for women, a lot of shame is being driven by having to uh, be perfect, to, to, to be able to do it all, to run the household and to look after the kids and, and, uh, and all these things and never break a sweat. There's this, you must never let, let yourself be seen to be anything other than that. You put on a mask and you try your best to be achieving and to be coping well and not to be seen otherwise, that you can't cope sometimes. And for men, simply, shame is about not being seen to be weak. That's why we never ask for directions. <laughs> Think about it. That's it, isn't it? No, no, I'm not going to ask for directions because I'm seen to be weak. I'll work it out myself, thank you. I'm a man. It's that thing. It's shame. And for Christians, not being ashamed of the gospel is about not worrying about being seen as being unable or weak because that's the point that's actually something to delight in Paul says in his same letter Romans 5 verse 5 he says hope has not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by Holy Spirit why is there shame in that? it's not about us in the first place it's about him it's not about how weak we mustn't be seen to be we are, accept it it's about him which is why he says, I am not, I cannot be ashamed by the one I love. And let me tell you why. It's because I'm no longer guilty. There was something I could never fix in a million lifetimes. I'm, I'm a pitiful man. I'm unable to do anything about my predicament. And I still get it wrong. And it's okay because he's done the impossible. And he ensures by his unwavering, unchanging, upright character that I am his forever. Ashamed? Never. That's what Paul's saying. I'm unashamed of the gospel. See, despite threats of beatings, of imprisonment, of death, all of which eventually came true, Paul shouted this from the rooftops. 
He was a changed man. And this was something he was never going to let go of and never hide under a bushel. This is who I am. It's not because I'm a man trying to be hard. It's because he is. It's all about him. So let's read these verses again. And just hear Paul's heart in this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness, the right standing of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. To Martin Luther, that was the open gates to paradise and he was born again, just trusting that truth. For you and for me, all we have to do is just trust it. Do you? Do you believe it? Have you seen a change in your heart? Do you sense a change in your spirit when you rise to that truth of what Christ has done for you? Do you realise that without him you're lost forever? In him you're safe forever. About the cross, Maurice Nightingale, one of our fellow leaders, up in East Anglia, he said a couple of weeks ago, he said, it's amazing how God can solve so many cosmic issues in that one moment that doesn't compromise his integrity in any way. What a God. I will never be the best son on this planet. I will never be the best husband, the best father, or even the best pastor. Don't expect that of me. I will never be the best of any of those in this lifetime. Do you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Because I know the one who is the best son, husband, pastor, brother, friend, Christ, my saviour. And he's at work in me now. And I hope I'm growing and changing. And I'll still make mistakes. But that's okay. Because I know the one who is perfect who has saved me. I'm unashamed. Are you unashamed? If you have trouble seeking security for the future, dwell on Christ's work on the cross and realise what he's done for you. If you lack boldness for sharing your faith with your friends, just dwell on what Christ has done for you. Do you feel dry or joyless? Sometimes we go through these seasons, it's okay. Just look to the cross and see what Christ has done for you. If you feel like you don't deserve his love or his grace or his favour, his mercy, just look to what Christ has done for you on the cross. Keep looking to the cross. And if you're not saved and you want to know how to be saved, look to the cross. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Shall we sing a song? Would you like to stand?